Welcome to the Family Goals Podcast with Davey Pollock and Pastor Jay. My name is Jolan House, and the purpose of this podcast is to encourage you to grow closer to God, to strengthen your marriage, and to inspire your family to reach its highest potential. On this episode, Davey and Pastor Jay have an incredible conversation with best-selling author John Gordon. John has written over 25 books, including 12 bestsellers and five children's books. He's worked with numerous Fortune 500 companies, as well as professional and college sports teams. John shares some incredible wisdom and insight on his book writing, working with sports teams, and his faith in Christ. Check it out. Welcome to another episode of Family Goals with Pastor Jay and Davey Pollock. We have a very special guest today, John Gordon, who is a best-selling author and has a podcast, Positive You, and a consulting firm, leadership firm, all, all kind of things. Wrote in a few books. Written, written a few books, I guess. He wouldn't books. like my English already. Look at that. Wrote in a few books. That's why I haven't written my book yet, John, because I hadn't wrote it yet, all right? John, I love your work. Uh, you've had a huge impact on our church. We, we have done the one word uh, for the last four or five years, and we've also read your book, Energy Bus, as a team. And so those two things really have, have impacted us, so we really appreciate it. Oh, that's awesome. Honored to hear that. Love, love hearing that. Love the whole one-word concept. Do you have a word for this year? Because my word is power this year. Pow- my word is fire. Fire. And, uh, I was and he telling, is on fire. Yeah. So spiritually, I'm on, I mean, mainly spiritually on fire, but just a fresh anointing from God. That, that uh, And I'm challenging our church to, to set ourselves on fire for God and, and to kind of stay in fellowship and to stay in discipleship. And so my word's fire. Love that. You know, I said when I said my word was power to friends, one guy said, oh, are you going to get into politics? And I said, no, 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 not that kind of power. I want God's power. Because I was sick in December, around December 20th, I got COVID, and I was hurting for about a week and a half, tired, drained. I said, I'm going to need some power this year. And three words kept coming up for me, worship, hallelujah, and power. And I realized, okay, I need to worship, hallelujah, mm. and from that worship and surrender, right, God's power will move through me. And so I really have been praying for God's power to, to move through me this year, and it's been incredible. Like It's been a year so far like no other to experience his power moving through me. Let's go, preaching Man. out the gates. That's what I'm talking about, John. When you, when you, when you came up with the one word, John, how did, how did that start? Like, how did you – like, I, I've talked to you about this before, and I find this very interesting – I believe you told me in the past, like, you don't, like, you haven't planned your books out. Your books don't take a long time to write, usually. Like, like when you get an idea and he gets a thought in his head, he literally is like, boom, I'm getting it done, like, right now. Is, is this how that happened with one word, too? It is the same way, praying on the word. The idea came from Dan and Jimmy, guys I wrote uh, the book, One Word That Will Change Your Life, with They're big FCA guys. And Dan and Jimmy have been doing this for over 20 years. So they came up with the concept. They told me about it. And so every year I would just pray on it. They pray on their words. And it's amazing. Like the word will just come every year. Same thing with a book. I'll get an idea. I'll get a vision of what I'm supposed to write. And I'll start. I'll just get a basic premise. I'll sort of get a framework. And then I'll start one page at a time. But before you know it, you know, walking each day, praying each day, more of the book is revealed. I'll usually have a book written in about three and a half weeks of, of definitely, definitely God inspiration. The longest it's taken is about four weeks, sometimes two weeks, wrote a book even on a plane years ago with a Blackberry, wrote a book that way. And I, I can't take credit. People often ask me, do you have a ghostwriter, John? You've written so many books. You don't look smart enough to write a book. <laughs> like, you know, I don't have a ghostwriter. I have a, I have a holy ghostwriter. And David, I need an editor like you. I definitely need an editor that edits the books. Like I write it, but I have to have that editor who works on, you know, the grammar a little bit and some of the typos and spelling mistakes. So I'm, I'm, I'm not the genius. Uh, God's the genius. Well, Dave, Davey and I are hoping to write a book on family goals. And that was the, why we started the podcast. We thought, well, we'll just do a podcast. And then from the podcast, we could come up with a book. Do you have any suggestions for us in, in writing our book? Well, one, I love the title. I think it's incredible. That's where you start, right? What is the title? For me, get the title first. Get the core gist of what the book is going to be about. I pretty much understand family goals, right? How do, wanna, how do you want to create a great family? How to do it? What are the goals to creating a great family? What are the commitments you need to make? What are the actions and the practices, right? 
So I think this is going to be a, a phenomenal book already just hearing that. And then it's really finding the information. I always say principle story application is the best way to teach. That's how Jesus taught. What's the principle? Tell a story and help families apply it. Help people apply it. Help the reader apply it. My wife and I wrote a book called Relationship Grit. And it's about how to stick together through challenging times based on our own personal experience, our own relationship, which has been a lot of ups and downs, a lot of mistakes along the way. Not from her, from me, <laughs> right? Mistakes I've made. And so we share it all in that book. It's raw, it's real, but GRIT is an acronym. It stands for God. You got to invite God into your marriage. You got to resolve that you're going to stick together. Like no matter what, we're going to resolve. We're going to invest in the marriage, invest in the relationship. You can't be a consumer. You got to be an investor. And we're going to do it together. It can't just be one. If one wants to make it work and the other doesn't, it's not going to happen, right? You have to both want to make it work together and do the work together. So GRIT is an acronym. So we sort of put this together mm -hmm. with our principles and our ideas and our stories. And you can do the same thing, basically, as you gather more and more information from people you learn from, ideas you want to share, things that have worked in your own relationship. But the framework is key, right? Put the framework together first, sort of the outline, and then all you're doing is filling in that outline. Well, and one thing I think everybody needs to hear that I, that I love what he said, too, but he talked about tell a story. You know, that's, that's what we do on TV. That's what John does when he speaks. Like, and no one, everybody has a personal story. Everyone has a personal testimony. Like, people talk, people are scared to share their faith sometimes because I don't want to say the right thing. No one can take away your personal story. No, it's your story. It's your original story of how you came to faith. It's your original story of your mess ups, of your, of your good things that happen, your bad things that happen. But it's not wrong. It never can be wrong. So if you feel confident telling your story and you know your story and you write your story down and you master your story. And a lot of times, you know, with, with FCA and with chaplains and, um, you know, you sit down and you, you write out your testimony. Like how did you've done that too mm -hmm. with people? I'm sure write out your testimony. Cause now you realize the stories, the points like, Oh, this is why this is what happened. This is what happened when, and then when you share it, you don't have to have that apprehension. You don't have to have that worry. You know, you don't have to, how's this going to hit them? I'm not trying to hit them. God's going to hit them where they need them. The Holy Spirit's going to take care of that. But I can tell you the story of how the Holy Spirit met me, how God met me where I was at. Well, it's like when Jesus heals the blind man, and they keep questioning, the religious leaders keep questioning him. He says, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. <laughs> like he's just telling. He's I just telling, know what he did. And how did Jesus teach, right? What is the Bible all about? It's stories. And when we are hearing a story, scientists have studied this. There's a certain activation that happens in the brain. Like you're more aware, you're more attentive. Whenever you're giving a speech at an event, people remember the stories. They don't, they don't remember the statistics. Nope. They don't remember the PowerPoint slides. They don't remember all the things you said. I don't even use PowerPoint for that reason. People remember the stories that you told. So give people great stories to tell that they can learn from, from, family stand, from a family standpoint with your book. And that will impact a lot of people. Like I think about my family. I tell a story about not being a great father at one point, not being a great husband. I wasn't really investing in my family. And the year that I did, it was a year that changed everything. I decided to serve my family. I had to commit to them. I made a commitment. Instead of doing 18 engagements a month, I now only did two or three tops. And I'm, I'm home all the time, right? I'm with my family and I'm home. And it's wild because like, I hadn't been home a lot. I've been on the road so much and they were really struggling. They were messed up and I wanted a different team. I tell people I wanted a different team because they were a messed up team. But then I committed to them. I invested in them. At the end of the year, I realized I didn't need a different team. I needed to become a better leader at home that invested in my team and made them better. And that made our family better. So again, I just told that story. It will now make hopefully people think, what can I do more to invest in my family and my team so that we can get better together. How did you do that, John? What what specific things did y'all start doing together? What specific things? Like, I think people say all the time, like, I, you know, I want to do things. But then you get at home, and what I've seen with people is you turn the TV on, and the next thing you know, you turn the TV on, and you watch TV for eight hours. Like, is there anything specific, like, that, that helped your family do this and come together and become stronger and bond better? Yes. Yeah, so one thing was we would sit around the table, 
And every Sunday, we'd sit around the table, and we had a family meeting. Best thing I've ever done. Dan Britton is the one who gave me the idea. He's the guy I wrote one word that will change your life with. And we sat around the table. We talked about our family mission statement. So we came up with a mission statement. We talked about our one words and how we were living them for the year. So that was a great team building, family building exercise. And then we also talked about challenges. Okay, what are you going through? What's a challenge you're facing? And then we would help each other with that challenge. We found out so many things that our kids were going through that we would have not found out any other way. So by doing that, we really learned what they were facing and, and coming up with solutions for each other was really helpful. And I would even share some of my challenges and my kids were sitting there trying to problem solve for me. So it's a great critical thinking exercise. And David, they didn't want to do it. My wife didn't want to do it on Sunday. No, 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 let's not do it. No, we're sitting down. I would literally fight for the culture, right? Fight for the culture of the family. We are sitting down. We are doing this. And it was always a struggle. And it's so easy to give up. A lot of times yep. dads will just say, all right, forget it. And they'll walk away. Moms will say, all right, now just forget it. You've got to put in the work just like you have to put in the work to win a national championship in Georgia, right? You got to put in the work. And you had to do the same thing as a family. So I just remember those days and the cry and no. But at the end, at the end of that meeting, everyone always felt better. Everyone was happier. And we would always finish those meetings with prayer, holding hands. Now, are we a perfect family? No. Do we have a lot of flaws and challenges? You bet. Have we struggled? Yes. Has the enemy attacked? Yes. But I do know this. We are so much stronger and we communicate in a lot of ways. Even to this day, my kids are now 23 and 21. And we communicate in a very raw, real way as a result of coming together as a family during those family meetings. And so our son will say, you know, uh, man, I did this this weekend, you know, uh, it wasn't great, you know, shouldn't have done that. And we'll talk about it. Like he feels very open to share, you know, his, his challenges. So really open, raw and real as a result of that. Also that year I stayed home and really served, would take my daughter to school every, every day. I started taking her to school. I would bring her food before her practice or before a game. I would go up there and bring her food. My son, I started to spend more time going to his tennis matches and his practices doing that. My wife, whatever she asked me to do, I had to do. I didn't tell her this, by the way. This was a commitment I made to myself. That would have been dangerous. But whatever she asked me to do, I had to do. Yeah, that would be and dangerous. And I started to do it, right? And I did also um, laundry. My big thing was laundry. What can I do that, that, that's, you know, contributing to the team? helping out. I don't like to do it, but that will help, you know, in a small thing, but help in a big way. So I did laundry, would fold the laundry and I became known as the laundry guy around the family. So I got a practical way to serve. Why didn't you, why didn't you, John, why didn't you write a book called the laundry guy then? (laughs) That's funny. That would have been a good one. That's funny. You know, it's hilarious though, because my son, he went to the chiropractor. He was struggling with his back with tennis, competitive tennis player. And the chiropractor said, so where's John? And my wife said, oh, he's at the World Leaders Conference, speaking with all these famous people. It was one of my two events that I was doing that month. And, and the chiropractor said, well, well, John's sort of famous. And my son said, not in our house. He does the laundry. <laughs> I like that. Hey, hey speaking, of, you, I thought, speaking of, you said kind of famous. Um, you go speak to all these different teams. I know you speak to the Rams because I see it on social media every year. You always speak to the Rams, but talk about how cool that is to see them in the Super Bowl with the relationship you've cultivated with them. It's it's really awesome to see. I'm not as great as honestly you seeing Georgia win a national championship. I know what you put into that program to finally see it happen right after all these years and the struggles. I was so happy for Georgia, and I spoke to to Georgia years ago when Mark Rick was the head coach and. They lost the first two games, made it to the SEC championship game, right? And finally, you know, to see them get over the hump was incredible. So I know that was amazing for you. And, I mean, I was so happy. I just spoke at a huge conference of educators in uh, in Georgia. And they were so happy. They were so excited. And there was a woman in front, and she said, Roll Tide. I said, not this year. Uh-uh. It was hilarious. <laughs> uh I said, am I – and my motto is anybody but Bama, anybody but Bama. <laughs> but, 
Sorry for the Alabama fans from a football standpoint, but working with Clemson all these years, you know, I'm a Clemson guy now for the last 10 years. So that's where that rivalry with, with uh, Bama comes in. But to see Georgia win was awesome. So now to see the Rams, right? They're the first year Sean McVay took over as a head coach, sat down with them for hours talking about culture leadership when he first got the job and, and really just sat there brainstorming, you know, like a, like a, a mastermind session we had. It was awesome. Became really good friends. Spoke to the team that year, the year after, the year after. Stopped speaking during COVID. Really, they don't have speakers anymore, right, in the professional level because of COVID. Colleges still did, but not pro teams. But the, but the first three or four years working with him and his team was just awesome. And getting to know those guys and see them succeed. Didn't get a chance to speak when Matthew was there. Stafford, I would have loved to done that right but but to see their success to see sean get back to the super bowl and to finally see you know to finally see them in a position that where i think this year they're going to win it i think that's really exciting but what's really cool about that from a cultural standpoint you know we study culture we study leadership right we look at teamwork you look at an obj he goes to that team have you heard any issues any issues whatsoever about obj since he's been there did you hear any issues with Todd Gurley when he was hurt and the media kept on trying to make it something about his injury two years ago with the Rams? Nothing, no issues. Why? Because of leadership, culture, relationship. Sean connects with the players, talks to them. The coaches do. There's a kind of atmosphere. We, not me. That's great for leadership too as a parent, right? Family. We, not me. That is like one of the best principles of all. We, not me. We actually talked about it five years ago, right? We, not me. And to see it come to life right now as a team, and that's why they're going to the Super Bowl, we, not me, that is everything. We, not me. So powerful. First thing he did on stage, by the way, you asked the next one, but first thing he did on stage was McVay. How about these players to the fans? It's the fir- that's the, absolutely yep. the first thing he did last night in the trophy ceremony. Was, and every time he's asked about something, it's, oh, it's awesome. Look at Stafford. Look at this. Look, it's, always, it's always like that with him. And he's a, he, shoot, he took over at 31. I mean, he's 31, he's 31 years old when he's a head coach in the NFL, leading guys that are 36, 37 that have been in the league for 10, 15 years. If you don't think guys will see through fake culture in a heartbeat or what your intentions are, um, they'll do it quick. But and he, and he will meet with them, right? He will meet with them one-on-one, and he's there to serve them and help them. I met with him when he was 30. He hadn't even turned 31 yet, and he had just gotten the job. And I'm thinking, wow. This guy is incredible. I was blown away meeting with him. Like he was, he was so young when we met, like the way he just haven't been around all these older NFL coaches and work working with them. And I'm the young guy all these years working with all these old guys. Now I'm the old guy speaking to this young guy. And I'm like, this guy has got it. Like he is incredible. He's unbelievable. And Les Snead told me that when they hired him, they were like, like, how can we hire this young 30-year-old guy to lead our franchise, the L.A. Rams? How can we do that? And, he, and they said, how can we not hire this guy? Selfless leadership. And it goes to parenting as well. Think about it, David. You have kids, right? Pastor Jay, I'm sure you have sure. kids, right? We, we have kids. Think about it. Are we getting recognition along the way as a parent? Like, are our kids saying, hey, Dad, I just want you to know you're doing a great job. I love the way you're leading me, Dad. When you when you punished me the other day, I thought that was really great the way you handled that and the way you held me accountable. Like, I just love your, you know, you're growing. That I can tell you're improving as a leader. We are not getting any recognition. And you don't get it for like 30 years, right? So it is pure selfless leadership to be a parent. And I think great coaches are the same way. You keep mentioning servant leadership, which is which is the model our, our Savior Jesus Christ had for us. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. So that's. I want to talk a little bit about I, um, about culture, John. Like, how long does it take? Like, like Sean McVay, he's kind of reaping the benefits that he started five years ago. How long does it take to build a culture in a family or an organization, a team? They went to the Super Bowl pretty quickly after yeah. just a few years, and he turned it around right away. That first year went from uh, four and twelve to eleven and five, I believe, as a as a head coach. Same thing with with Mike Smith. I worked with Mike Smith in Atlanta years ago when he took over as the head coach, and Matt Ryan was a rookie. That's how long ago it was, and they were four and twelve. They went to eleven and five, so it can happen really quickly if you do it the right way. If you don't allow older players or players from the old culture to contaminate 
the new culture. So you have to make sure you get the people who might contaminate it, energy vampires or just negative or just believe it should be done a certain way. You've got to get them on the bus. You've got to get them on the team. And the quicker you do that, the quicker the culture changes. So you either got to let people off or you got to help them and get them to buy in. And you got to do it in such a way that engages them, develops a relationship with them, makes them like feel like they're part of the process, leading the process. So it could happen really quickly, like within a, a year or two, I would say. You know, year you start to see a change. By year two, you can really change the, the culture. John, I, I've, I've read the book, obviously. I think almost everybody in the world has with Energy Bus, but you said energy vampires. Like, I want people to know right now what an energy vampire is and how it's necessary for all of us to get rid of those people in our lives. No matter who they are, we can't have them around us and why. Yeah, energy vampires will suck the life right out of you. They steal your dreams. They sabotage teams, organizations, morale. And they're not someone who is just like, you know, having a bad day. They're someone who is really negative, really down, and they contaminate. They sabotage the team and the culture. They create a environment that really hurts the team. One person can make a team, but one person can break a team. It's like the school that we were working with. We have an energy bus for schools program, work with schools around the country. And we had a principal saying, hey, we have this energy vampire. They just won't change. They won't change. They're 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 being negative. They said, "I've been here before you. I'll be here after you." And I'm not changing. We told her just continue to build your culture, make it so strong, so strong that the energy vampire feels like they don't fit in. You've got to get everyone else on the bus and continue to build it. And that way, that person will get off the bus because with school districts and so forth, you can't just fire someone, right? They have tenure and so forth and con- contractual things and unions, so it's hard to do that. And so she did it at the end of the year, that vampire went up to that principal and said, I can't do this anymore. This place is too positive for me. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting run over by the energy bus. And she literally got off the bus and went on another bus somewhere else where she's making that school miserable. And when she left, the morale changed dramatically. When Mark Rick put up an energy vampire in the team meeting room years ago, they took the picture of, any player that was being a vampire, really negative, hurting the team, complaining a lot that day perhaps, and they took that picture from the media guy and they put it on the wall. And no one wanted to be on the wall. Rick was saying basically we're not going to energy vampires to sabotage our team and our mission of what we're here to do. And I heard from a bunch of guys on that team, and they said it changed their mindset. They were no longer going to be negative. They were going to focus on being positive. And just that one decision, one decision allow them to overcome those two losses in the beginning, win the next 10 games in a row and win games where you will, you know, we see other teams where you have some losses, guys start to get all negative. They start to sabotage the culture. They start to complain, blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, the culture sabotage, the season is lost and energy vampires ruin your team on a personal level. You got to be more positive than the negativity that you face. Gandhi said, I will not let anyone walk through my mind with their dirty feet. And so you got to be more positive than all that negativity you're dealing with. And you're going to encounter energy vampires, but you cannot allow their negative energy to bring you down. The goal is to lift them up. Now, I do believe as a Christian, right, our job is to first and foremost, not just get rid of these people, not just walk away from them, but to try to transform them, to love them, to practice empathy, to understand why, why they're facing the challenge they are, why they're being the way they are, and try to help them. Because if everyone always stays away from people who are negative, who's going to help the people who are negative, right? Who's going to make a difference? So we give them a chance. But as Jesus did, he would try, he would try to impact. And what did he tell his disciples? If they don't listen, if they're not willing to hear it, then you just like kick up the dust off your shoes and, 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 and walk mm-hmm. away, move on to the next. So you keep asking people to get on your bus. You don't waste your energy worrying about those who don't get on. Keep asking new ones to get on. And eventually you'll have a standing room only bus. But I think too often what happens is we allow those energy vampires to sabotage us, our team, our organization, our culture. And I think that book has been so successful because it really resonates with the challenges that we face in dealing with negativity. But once you address it, give them a chance to get on. If they don't, okay, then they have a choice. Get on the bus or get off and go somewhere else. A lot's been said about the Clemson culture and I'm a huge fan of Dabo Sweeney. We have some friends who've coached there and played there. 
Can you speak a little bit about why Clemson's been so successful and the culture that Dabo has built there? Culture is the living, breathing essence of what an organization values, believes, thinks, says, and does. And I believe that comes from the leader, the essence of a leader, first and foremost. It must also come to life from the essence of everybody on a team in an organization, right? Everyone creates the culture of it, but it really comes from the leader. And Dabo is the ultimate essence of of a positive leader. I believe this season is a great testament to his leadership. It wasn't the two national championships. I mean, those are great. But this year, I saw firsthand a coach that was not allowing their record to define them. I got up there. It was right before the Florida State game. I was speaking to the team. I already spoke in training camp, but I went up there to speak that night before the before the game. And Dabo was like leading like no other. He was investing in those guys. He was pouring into them. I think they were four and three. He said, John, I'm able to teach things right now. I haven't been able to teach in the years past because we've had so much success. Yeah. I'm really in it with these guys. I'm I'm helping him work through it. He was pouring into DJ, right? People are complaining about DJ and how he's playing as a quarterback. And he's speaking a life into DJ. He's investing in them. I'm like, wow. Like he was even a stronger leader this year than, than, than any year before, because he knew his players needed his positivity. So I think that's a testament to who he is and the kind of leader he is to see that. And sure enough, they go on to win every game, right? Every game after that, they went undefeated the rest of the way. I'd like to think it was my talk, but I know <laughs> it was his leadership. I know it was his incre- it's incredible leadership, helping them stay the course, yep. not wavering, right? And really getting those guys to, to buy in. Also, they have family night every Wednesday. They eat together as a, as a, as a team, as a family. You go up there for practices and you'll see coaches, kids on the sidelines, part of the family, part of the team. They make it a family atmosphere, and that all comes from him. I brought several people with me. Erwin McManus is one of them. He's a pastor mm-hmm. of Mosaic, you know, legendary pastor. Sure. Erwin came with me. He spoke to the team at, at their chapel service, so he's probably why they won and went undefeated after that. But he spoke as well, and he could not believe. Like, he was blown away at how genuine and real and kind the kind of presence that Dabo had. You don't see that a lot of times on TV, but when you're in it and around him in person, it becomes really evident and clear. I was just with Eric Spolstra. Eric Spolstra went up to see Dabo uh, in the off season and they spent some time together and he just couldn't believe like the kind of person and human being he was, you know, and the kind of fun they had together. That's just Dabo. It's authentic. Yeah. I mean, it's real when you're around him, you can feel it. And, and, I, and I like it too, because, the sport of football is in a difficult spot, but I do like the fact that, like, the dictatorship, and, and you can take that word and use another word probably for the coaches that, that have in the past have led from fear and so much negativity, 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 and now you got a guy like Dabba that comes in and shows, wait a minute, I don't have to be a guy like, you know, Urban Meyer who's always been so, you know, focused and in your face and this. You could be a guy like Dabba that leads with love, and I think you've seen it now start to spread – to other parts of college football with that. John, one thing that's super important to me and I'm super passionate about and I'm looking for answers and trying to figure it out, but I've talked to you about this before in the past and you've helped me, youth sports, how to approach youth sports, how to fix youth sports. It, it's, it's big on my mind. It's big on my thoughts. It's big in my prayer life. Like I, I, I want to do something to, to fix the negativity, to fix the big business of it. Um, but you've had, a, you've had experience with your son and, and you've had experience stepping out of the way and being more positive and you've seen personal results that, that you can speak to. I think that every, every parent and every dad needs to hear. Yeah. My son and my daughter and David had you, I had you on the podcast, positive you, and you were on there talking about, it and it was incredible what you were sharing about it and the changes that we need to, to make in youth sports. We need to change the human heart in every aspect right human heart has to go through a transformation and it really has to be about transforming kids lives and mentoring them and coaching them and guiding them and helping them to become better human beings i'll never forget jim lawyer one of the great great mental coaches in the sport of tennis he said john remember he said the purpose of tennis for your son is to help him become a better human being that changed everything it wasn't about the wins the losses the ranking become a better human being. 
And reading Joe Ehrman's book, Inside Out Coaching, impacted me as a parent because he talked about being a transformational leader instead of a transactional leader. And I realized as a former athlete who was recruited to play football in college, who eventually decided to play lacrosse at Cornell University. We were a top 10 program when I arrived at Cornell in the country, still a powerhouse to this day. You know, I was an athlete and that's how I got my recognition. It's how you got your recognition. We're so used to getting our recognition through performance and then what happens is we start to then transfer that to our kids. We want them to perform well. We want them to do great. So it basically gives us a great feeling. So it makes us look good. Our identity is tied into the performance of our kids. And I realized the way I was doing it as an athlete, I was now doing it to my kids and I had to change. And so I changed from that being, from being that transactional guy to being transformational. My daughter who almost quit lacrosse uh, became a different player. I became a different dad, encouraging her, supporting her, and changed our relationship, changed everything. So for youth sports, it's about them, their soul, their development. And you know, David, you're good. You're going to rise to the occasion. You're going to rise up amongst all the other kids, and people are going to find you and see that you're good. Parents want their next kid to be Tim Tebow. They want their next kid to be Joe Burrow. They want him to be Cam Newton. They want him to be like the next big thing. And you know what? Just help them to become the best version of themselves and who they are. And coaches, the coaches that are out there, you're not a professional coach. This is not about you living your dream as a coach. You're treating these kids like professional athletes. I saw this one guy yelling at these kids, don't cheat on me, don't cheat on me, don't cheat on me, like yelling at them, making them do this drill and hitting each other. And I'm like, what is this guy doing? This guy is crazy. And so we've got to make sure that we remember as coaches, as parents, why we're here, what it's all about, what's the core reason. It's not money. It's not professional professionalism. It's not about getting that Division One scholarship. If they're meant to and they love it, they will. And you have to remember that. It's about getting them to be the best person they can be. I love the cartoon that shows a dad yelling at his son on the baseball field. And it says, you realize you're yelling at a future software developer. <laughs> It's like this kid is not going to be a professional <laughs> athlete, right? So help them become who they're meant to be. My daughter winded up not playing in college, even though she was recruited to play in college, you know, for some Division One schools. She was like a lower-level Division One player, not a top-tier Division One, but she could have played Division One for sure. And she was recruited by, by some of those schools, and she decided not to play. And I remember asking her halfway through her freshman year at Clemson, she went to Clemson, I said, are you happy with your choice? Like, do you miss lacrosse? She goes, I don't miss it at all, dad. I'm like, okay, well then you made the right choice. Right. And our son played two years of tennis and then you know, in college and then quit and didn't love it. Didn't love it. And we supported him along the way in terms of his decision and everything else. And he just didn't love it. So that's the thing. I, when I speak to athletes now, I always say, if you love it, then you stick with it. To play in college, it's like a pro job today. So if 100%. you really love it, then you then you then you do it, right? But if you don't, maybe you shouldn't do it. Like you've got to own this for yourself. You don't do it for anyone else. Don't do it for your parents. Don't do it for other people. Do it because this is something you want to do and something you love to do. And if you remember that, you'll be great. Because if you got to get your kid to practice, if you got to get your kid, like, now it's it's important to encourage them and tell them about the importance of practicing the importance of doing it. But my daughter still remembers me making her do the wall every day, working on her right and left hand, you know, in lacrosse, which is key. And it made her a really strong player, but she still resents me making her do the wall because she didn't really want to do the wall. And it gave her confidence, right? But she remembers me making her do the wall to get her phone. And, you know, look back <laughs> on that. Should I have made her do the wall? No. You know, maybe I should have went out there and said, hey, let's do the wall together. Or let, we, we would actually do dodges together and practice dodges. And she remembered that and she loved that. And I had fun doing that. But to make them practice probably isn't the best approach. And I think that too many parents are doing that as well. Give them incentive, give them encouragement, talk about the importance of it. But if they don't want to, then it's going to be up to them to decide how good they want to be. And see, I love that. I, I, I love that because, listen, if they ask, they'll get it. Like, if they ask and they give you permission and they invite you, go get it. Like, go practice all you want. But 
if we're making them do it, like, and here's, here's what I think, John, and I, I think this is the crux of why sport is the way, way it is. Sport now becomes, every sport becomes 24-7. Every sport leads to conditioning, which leads to spring ball, which leads to seven-on-seven, uh, seven, which leads to camp, which leads to, and there's no love. The, the, the passion and the joy for the sport now becomes, it's a job. Like, when, it, it sucks for us when we get older, right? Like, it becomes a job, and things are like, man, this used to be a lot of fun, but I got to do this crap every day. Like when you get to be a professional athlete, I can tell you, I remember getting in the building at 6 a.m., 6.30, and leaving at 6 p.m., 7 p.m., and I was like, golly, that's a full day, bro. Like that's a, a day of it. So I think because we want our kids to be X, Y, and Z, we're trying to make them build habits that we've seen people that are successful on, you know, later on in life, but they're not going to want to do that if we do it at 8 if we do it at nine, if we do it at 10, are they really going to want to work by themselves and do it? I've been doing that same shooting drill since I was eight. Like, I don't want to go in the gym. So I feel like that's, I feel like that's part of the problem. We look at Steph Curry and we see, okay, he would be out there shooting as a kid. So my son should have to do that, but he's not Steph Curry. This was Steph Curry's destiny. This was his goal. He loved to do it. He had a dad who was a professional basketball player. He wanted to be like him. He saw that. So he did it right. David, you said it best. It's about fun. Like you need to make it fun. It shouldn't be a job. It shouldn't be a chore. Do everything you can to make it fun. And along the way, they will develop the skills they need. And at a certain point, you then will develop the skills of, of mastery to be great. But to make them do it and make it a chore and make it a job, we are ruining our kids' joy and having fun. Sports are meant to be fun. And the more fun they have, if they want to get better at now they'll work to master certain parts of the craft. But if you make it a chore first, they, want to, they won't want to master anything. They'll want to run away from it. John, you mentioned Erwin McManus a little while ago, and, and he's a pastor that I have looked up to. And I listen, I've been to his Mosaic Conference. And I listened to his sermons, read a few of his books. And you mentioned him in one of your books, which is the favorite book that you've written for me is The Garden. So I feel like it's a beautiful description, beautiful presentation of the gospel. And we've had several people in our church have read that book as well. And so I appreciate you writing that book. Could you share with us a little bit about your, your faith and how you came to know Jesus and what the gospel means to you? Well, thanks for saying that because that book means a lot to me because it's the first book where I share my faith, you know, really openly. I subtle in other books like the carpenter and the seed, but really was open about it in the garden. I'm writing it along the way. And then it just hit me like, all right, you've got to finish this book and, and share the way you ultimately are going to find peace and joy and forgiveness and love and overcome the fear and the anxiety and the stress, right? I talk about the five Ds in that book and mm -hmm. how to overcome the five Ds and ultimately division within our soul, division that the enemy wants to, to, to manifest in our lives. He wants to divide us from our families, from our loved ones and our relationship. He wants to divide us from each other. We see it in the country right now. Enemy is having a, a heyday dividing people, but the key is to unite, right? And how do you unite with God? Well, you unite to God, the creator of the universe, through our savior, Jesus Christ. And that's how it happens. What happened in the garden gets reconciled on the cross. So the garden represents the separation of man from God because they, disobeyed, they ate the fruit, they believed the lie that they weren't enough. And as a result of that, they were separated. But then Jesus comes, right? And, and through Jesus, we get restored, we get redeemed. We are now able to connect to the Father through, and have that oneness that we were meant to have from the very beginning. And so what was lost is now found. What was broken is now restored and redeemed. And that only happens through Jesus. And my path is someone who grew up Jewish, whose mom was Jewish. I was bar mitzvah. I was raised by a stepfather who was an Italian New York City police officer, went to Catholic school, but we didn't have church. We didn't have religion. We celebrated Christmas. We celebrate Easter. But for me, it wasn't religious. I knew nothing about really the holidays other than it was, you know, Jesus's uh, birth and resurrection. But again, didn't know if I believed in those. And then from, from that point on, I was a seeker a new ager trying to find my way studied Buddhism for a while was really into meditation. Oh, wow. And then I heard from 
I heard some sermons from Erwin McManus. A friend of mine gave me one of his sermons, and it was called Why I Follow Jesus. I was about 31, 32 years old, listened to the sermon, really spoke to me. For the first time, I, I heard the voice of Jesus through Erwin. I remember thinking, maybe there is something to this Jesus. Maybe, maybe he is who he said he was. And I remember I talked to my mom about it. She was like, well, now I see him as a, pro- you know, a prophet, blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, but it seems like there's something there. So I had this prayer. God, if Jesus is who he says he was, I'm open. Show me the signs. Show me the signs. I'm open. Just show me the signs. And next thing you know, I started seeing signs. Jesus is the answer. Like everywhere I went, I saw a sign that said that. Driving down to Orlando to speak, I had just started doing some speaking and I'm driving down, I'm looking to the left, and all of a sudden I heard, look. And I turned to the right, and there's a big sign that said, Jesus is the answer. Dang, that gives me chills. And so that happened so often. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. I go to a Buddhist energy healer, because I was having problems with my stomach and having a lot of uh, health issues, gut health issues. So I go to this Buddhist energy healer who does Thai organ massage, who, like, massages your colon and all this kind of stuff to, to heal you. And talking to him, I said, hey, I just started seeing Jesus is the answer science everywhere. What do you make of that? He said, John, I'm a Buddhist. I'm trying to attain enlightenment on my own. He said, with Jesus, it's spiritual cheating. Christianity is spiritual cheating. All you do is believe and receive. He said, Jesus takes your soul pain. He takes your heavy burden. He takes your heavy vibrational energy. And I always saw the world in terms of energy, you know, energy bus and so forth. It made sense to me. Energy, yeah, of course. He said he takes your heavy energy so you can connect to a perfect, harmonious, energetic God. I said, can I take someone else's soul pain and heavy energy? He goes, can you handle your own? And I walked out of there from a Buddhist energy healer after listening to a sermon from Earl McManus telling me that, you know what? Jesus takes your burden so you connect to God. It made such sense to me. And I walked out of there saying, I would believe in a God that would want to take that from me. He wouldn't want me to carry it. He would actually want to take that. And he's a loving God. And I said, all right, I'm going to give this Jesus a shot. And I didn't have all the answers. I doubted a lot. You know, I'm a sort of a, a reader, you know, in, in, in many ways, like question things, having a lot of doubts. But I remember saying, God, strengthen my faith. Just strengthen my faith. I'm open. And all of a sudden, people started to share these books with me. And out of the blue, someone would send me something in the mail, and I would hear a sermon. And it was Andy Stanley gave a, a few incredible talks. And The Case for Christ I read by Lee Strobel and Max Lucado books started to speak to me in a loving, heartfelt way. And, but most importantly, Pastor Jay and, and David, most importantly, for me, the greatest testament to God, the greatest thing that made me believe was that I saw how my belief in Jesus and accepting him as my savior, because I couldn't save myself. I saw how it changed me and changed my heart. And that is something you can't deny. My wife saw it. And it made my wife believe because she saw me change. It led my brother to accept Jesus because he saw the change in me. And so you see the change in someone and you know you didn't do it on your own. They know you were someone who was completely different. And they see you now more selfless, more loving, more kind, and now a servant leader, not someone who's just focused on yourself. Someone who's now writing these books who never wrote a book before in their lives. And you know that the power came from, from Jesus. And that's why I wrote The Garden. I had to share some of the story about all these young people that are struggling with fear, stress, and anxiety. Young people that are giving up their lives. People are committing suicide. They're losing hope. And I realized, well, I knew it was, it was a battle. It was a battle for their soul, a battle for their mind. It's a battle for all of us. And God showed me these five these one day in a walk. And he's like, this is how the enemy wages battle against us. It's doubt. It's distortion, negative thoughts and lies that will tell you things about yourself and your future that just aren't true. It's discouragement. The enemy knows he can't beat us himself. So what does he do? He gets us to beat ourselves. We get discouraged. We don't give up because it's hard. We give up because we get discouraged. Fourth, the distraction. Distractions are the enemy of greatness. The fruit was appealing, right, in the garden. It was appealing. We get distracted by things that seem bright and shiny, but they're not good for us or our soul. And that fifth, the of divide. And the word anxious literally means divided. That's Greek root word. And so God gives me these five Ds, right? I'm like, 
I didn't come with them up, come up with them on my own. And then he showed me the game plan. How do we win the battle? And instead of doubt, it's trust. Instead of distortion, it's speaking truth to the lives, right? Right in the scripture. What did Jesus do in the wilderness? It is written. It is written. It is written. The enemy lies and tempts, and you just keep on saying the truth and speaking truth. Instead of discouragement, you encourage. So, yes, we need a lot more encouragement in this world. That's one of my goals is to encourage people, one of my missions. And instead of distractions, we focus on what matters most. And Jesus told us that, taught us love, love and relationships are what matter most beyond everything else. Going back to youth sports, that's what matters, love and relationships. And then instead of division, it's uniting. And that's when in the end of the book, you know, Mr. Irwin, who is named after Irwin McManus, who teaches these two teenagers, these principles, he basically shares the ultimate answer. And the ultimate answer is, is Jesus, that through Jesus is how we ultimately win the battle. Because he already won the battle. So we're, we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. And once you remember that you're already victorious, you've already won, you can go through life a different mindset. And I got to be honest. I sometimes give the enemy too much credit. I'm like, oh, it's the enemy. Oh, we got a battle here. I, even though I grew up Jewish, I have a lot of Southern Baptists in me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I always like, we'll, we'll, we'll focus on a lot of times like the enemy. No, you got to remember that with Jesus, the oneness, the oneness with the creator of the universe, you now have the power to overcome, to step on the serpent's head. The enemy can only win when you're divided, when you are separate from God. And that's when the enemy has power. So don't let him have the power. You connect to God and have the power that you need to win the battle. And that is through Jesus. I don't know if you noticed, but you're using the word power a lot. I don't know if that's by accident or not, but um, <laughs> that one word, Pastor Jay's using fire a lot lately too. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll let you get out of here. I want to ask this selfishly and because you've already mentioned things that I've already written down. I, I want to look up there when McManus, why I follow Jesus, uh, the case for Christ. I want to read like what's some things that people really do want to get better that give us some ideas of some books to read or some sermons to listen to whatever has touched you in a mighty way. And obviously you can use your stuff too. If you have any, you can, you can look behind you if you're, if you're a little bit lost on one of your 26 books or 24 books, what's some things that have really encouraged you and helped you and, grown your faith and, and some things that you would really recommend. So Max Lucado's books are just amazing. I love Max Lucado's books. Traveling Light is a book that really spoke to me and encouraged me in, in, a, in a huge way. So I just love that book. It's about the 23rd Psalm, which is really powerful. I love that. Um, Dr. David Jeremiah is someone who really encourages me. I love him. An amazing human being. He told me that success is the fulfillment of God's plan for your life. And I just love that. That's my new definition ever since hearing that. Success is the fulfillment of God's plan for your life. Dr. David Jeremiah wrote a book called Forward, which is all about real optimistic, faithful belief, right? Rooting your optimism and belief in faith. Great book. Erwin McManus, go to Mosaic, and you can listen to a lot of his sermons. They're all on YouTube now. And Many of his sermons have really spoke to me, encouraged me in a, in a huge way. I just you know, love his message and the way he presents. He makes people who aren't believers, who are just seekers, feel comfortable. Doesn't hit you over the head with fire and brimstone. He woos you in with God's love. And it's really powerful when you hear it told in that way. So really powerful. I've read so many different books along the way. But yeah, as I said, The Case for Christ was just great on in terms of just, you know, understanding more the gospel. And there's a lot of myths out there about, oh, you know, the Bible was written 500 years later. Well, that's not really true. And a lot of the people who heard the story of Jesus right early on, if it, if it wasn't true, there weren't elements that would have been dispelled pretty quickly if there are a lot of doubts and fears, just look around and see how people have had personal encounters with Jesus. My wife was meditating one day and Jesus came to her in the meditation. In my meditations, I started seeing a glowing cross and that's something that started happening to me. So that was really powerful. In terms of another book, Traveling Light. Oh, and I said Traveling Light. Um, yep. Calvary Road. Calvary Road was powerful. Calvary Road was incredible. Humility by Andrew Murray written in like the late 1800s amazing book called humility that really was 
a big book for me. Uh, I'm looking at some other books over here. You know, again, everyone's going to find their own sources, their own journey along the way. But yeah, those are some, oh, John Orberg. I got to mention John Orberg. God is closer than you think. He wrote Soul Keeping, which is just incredible. Soul Keeping was so powerful. And All the Places to Go is just an incredible book. Like he combines Dr. Seuss kind of language in some capacity, in some way, with also faith and tells the story of Esther and a couple other stories that you're just like, wow, I can't make this up. I think, I think you got us covered. I think you got us covered for like four years now, John. I think, I think we're, I think we're, I think we're good. No, no more. My paper's full and my brain is full. (laughs) John, we're honored to have you on the podcast. And and I just want to speak some truth into your life and want you to know that you are impacting millions of people. You really are. You're, You're a brilliant person, obviously from what we just heard but you're using it to advance the kingdom and to serve so many people. And I just want to say thank you. We appreciate you. That means a lot. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I do want to put a put a thing out there for the garden. I want people, if I had to say one book, just please read the garden. It's not self-promotional. We actually donate the proceeds to to uh, you know churches. And so just please read the garden because I, I really believe that the message we needed to hear and I want more people to read it. It's doing okay, but not like it should be. I mean, I believe every kid, every teenager, every adult should read this book to really understand the love of, of Jesus and also the practical way and how to win the battle. So, yeah, if you can share that with others, and I appreciate you guys talking about it, that will mean a lot. Appreciate your we time, big dog. We appreciate it very much. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. Have a good one, Bob. Right, Go dogs. Thank you. Thank you. Go dogs. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Family Goals podcast with Davey Pollock and Pastor Jay. I am so blown away from all the wisdom that John just dropped on us. My challenge for you is finding that one word for the year. I'm reminded of Colossians 3.23, work willingly at whatever you do as though you're working for the Lord rather than for people. So no matter where you are or what you're doing, whether that's at work, coaching your kids or hanging out at home, this word is your main focus. So you may need to have that family meeting. What is your family's mission statement? What does your family stand for? When you and your family wake up in the morning, what's the goal? So if you stand for nothing, you will fall for anything. I encourage and then challenge you to take action in your household. So out of all the books that John mentioned, I would recommend reading The Garden. The Garden is a spiritual fable on ways to overcome fear, anxiety, and stress. So I know that we all struggle with all of these things. So I'm super excited to dive into this book myself. Thank you again for tuning in and we'll catch you next week.